Hello and welcome to GradCast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students here at Western University. I'm your host, Ariel Frame. And I'm your co-host, Scott Walters. And we're here today with Jessica Sinka. Welcome. Thank you. So Jessica, tell us a little bit about what you do here at Western. Yes, so as you probably already know, I'm part of the biology department. I'm working in the lab of Dr. Mark Bernards. Um, recently, I've actually added a co-supervisor on, Sangeeta Dabadal. And my primary focus is kind of tracking the carbon flux in the pathway of subrin, which is this really important wound-associated molecule in the potato as well as other plants. Cool. Uh, so carbon flux, I mean, the first, my first question is basically in, in what way does carbon flux with uh, subrin? What does that mean? Yeah, so I typically like to kind of picture it as a bucket flowing up with water in a kind of stream of another buckets. So if you picture kind of like a fountain, I guess, the water flowing into the bucket, if you were to track the bucket at any given point in time, it would look like it's full. So that's the total amount of compound that you would have. But what carbon flux actually does is track the rate of the flow of water, or in this case, the flow of carbon through these pathways. So it allows us to kind of get a better idea of how quickly these metabolites are being generated and subsequently turned over. So by turned over, I I think you mean replaced over time. But first of all, I want to back up a minute. I want to know a bit more about what subarin is. Yes, of course. So basically, if you don't like rotten potatoes, subarin is probably a pretty good thing. So just like as a human, we would apply a bandage to a molecule or even form our own scab, potatoes and other plants are also able to form this kind of um, wound surface. So the scab of the plant, basically. So subarin, pretty complex molecule, is um, scaffolded. So it basically creates this external barrier to the outer world, as well as prevents pathogens from getting in. Cool. I mean, uh, when you, I mean, presumably you've seen potatoes like form this little wound thing, like does it look a lot different? Like, you know, like we have like a, a scab and it literally looks like yeah. darker. Like what is a, um, a potato scab? <laughs> so maybe not as um, gory as what a human scab would be like, but it's something that you can go test out at home if you wanted. So if you were to <laughs> cut a potato, um, it will basically reform its skin. So over time, it will start looking not much different than the skin of the potato itself. Wait, so the potato I have like in my cabinet at home is like alive and going to like... It will wound heal if you ask it to. Wow. Okay. Subrin. F- powerful. Cool. So um, hmm. maybe go into a little bit more detail if you can about why it's important for... Car- why subrin is important for carbon flux. Yeah. So subrin is kind of an interesting molecule. And although we don't know the ultrastructure of it completely... We have this um, cool little hypothesis where subrin is formed of two domains. So the first domain is phenolic in nature, and then the second domain is aliphatic. So these are two different classes of chemical compounds that are formed through very different biosynthetic pathways. So a very important part in why we're applying carbon flux to study this is because we want to know which domain is being synthesized first or if there's this sharing of carbon, which is initially coming from the same source, which is these starch molecules. As you all know, potatoes are very starchy. So I like to also think of it kind of like building a house. Can you describe for us like what it looks, what it, the molecule looks like? Cause, and when I think, I don't, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not amazing at chemistry and stuff, yeah. but I know that like when I'm thinking of something with carbon, I'm drawing like lines and diagrams and hexagons and 
and stuff and ma- maybe maybe you can describe what what it would look like to be like phenolic or um allopathic yeah so the phenolic as you kind of described you have a whole bunch of hexagons basically so a bunch of these um more condensed um, packed area and this is deposited within kind of the outer surface so this is the primary cell wall and this will anchor the aliphatic domain which is composed of more of lipids and aliphatics and fatty acids and alkanes so these are kind of your typical go back to organic chemistry you have this um, kind of zigzag looking structure so the phenolics sound like sort of like foundational to like the structure yeah, of where you're wanting where aliphatic yeah. goes on top layer. So you're trying to figure out which one maybe comes first. It almost sounds like you're saying. Yeah. So how would you go about discovering that? Yeah. So the first step was to identify how we're actually going to track the um, carbon turnover in these pathways. So we are using isotopically labeled glucose molecules. So glucose occurs very early on in the pathway. And then because it's isotopic, we're able to actually identify that through gas chromatography mass spectrometry. So basically all compounds have this unique fingerprint when you look at them through their mass spectra. And that also goes for compounds that have different isotopic composition. So I'm now able to identify exactly where my carbon from glucose is going in the pathway and more importantly, what time it makes it there. So what, what does it mean to, ha- to have something isotopically labeled? Yeah, so an isotope is just a typical, um, typical compound, so let's say carbon, which has more neutrons than it does um, in its lighter isotope form. So that additional neutron is making it a lot heavier. So with that additional mass unit to identify it on mass spectra, I would be able to actually see that one mass unit shift. So um, again, it kind of looks like a fingerprint when you're looking at it. So like uh, on like the, I guess at the physics level and the, on the actual atom, it's, it's, it's different. The atom is different. But yeah. like if I had uh, a potato that was like filled with isotopic label and, and one that wasn't uh, like looking at them or feeling them or tasting them, like it wouldn't, wouldn't feel any different to me. But like on a physical level, at the atomic level, you can use um, a special machine to to de- determine the difference at the atomic level. Yeah. Okay. So exactly, the compounds would basically exhibit the exact same um, chemical chemical abilities as the lighter isotope. So it's not going to affect how the potato wound heals when I add it. The only difference is using this highly sensitive um, mass spectrometer. I'm able to actually identify where it is pooling in these downstream metabolites. And you said you're labeling it. So it sounds like you are intentionally influencing this signal. So you're putting it in there. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, which surprisingly took me a lot longer than what I would expect. So just trying to figure out how to get um, the amount of labeled glucose that I need into the potato system took quite a bit of time. So eventually we ended up actually forcing it in there with a syringe. So (laughs) a little bit of this... um, backdoor way to getting it in and now we've called it this low-tech way to vacuum infiltrate the potato so wait so you have a potato and like i guess maybe a baby potato and (laughs) and like you inject uh some isotopic label inside of it and then it just like starts eating it and using it for all its molecules so pretty close so we actually core the potato first so we kind of create these um cylindrical pieces which are then cut into discs so they're only about two to three millimeters in height 
and maybe one and a half centimeters around. And we just group these all into a syringe with the labeled glucose and basically force them into a vacuum by pulling the plunger of the syringe. And that's enough to force this glucose solution to be taken up into the cells of the potato. Okay, so you're talking about these two different pathways that exist to create this subrin that's a Band-Aid on the surface of potatoes. What is sort of the ramification? Is there a ramification of whether or not one pathway is more dominant at a certain time or just overall? Is there, what is sort of the emphasis behind looking at why we're interested in those two different pathways? What's the difference between them? Yeah, the end goal in this project has always been to improve subrization as a whole. So with quicker subrization, um, we'll be able to... Um, we'll be able to improve wound healing, we'll be able to improve drought resistance, as well as pathogen resistance. So these are all very important things. And it is very important to have a fully functioning um, phenolic domain, or at least we presume it's important to have a fully functioning domain in order to anchor the second domain. So if we're able to speed up the process of one domain, so maybe through my carbon flux labeling, we can identify um, rate limiting steps. Um, we can then hopefully speed it up, enhance, and make a better wound healing model in the end. So, so is it? Um, it's really important that it's potato. I mean, is it, that it's potatoes you're looking at because we eat them and we gotta make sure that we mm -hmm. can grow them properly. Or is this something maybe we're learning about like plants in general? Yeah. So it's definitely generalizable to all plants. Though, for example, the carbon sources may di be different, and there's other kind of species um, differences that you will see. Um, we chose the potato for two reasons. Number one, well, it is a staple crop. It's super important to many parts of the world, extremely drought resistant. But on the other hand, it also produces an extremely large amount of subrin. So if you picture what a potato tuber looks like and you were to cut it in half, that entire wound surface, so as large as the potato diameter is, would be infiltrated with subrin. So we're able to collect a lot of subrin in order to analyze on our um, GCMS, LCMS, or whatever choice of um, analytical equipment we use. That's pretty cool. So we talked about being generalizable to other plants, and you've talked about wanting to improve the subrinization of these plants. But how would that happen? Once you know uh, which pathway, whether or not it is limiting, what manner is it that you would be improving that? Is that sort of like genetic manipulation? What is sort of the forward steps? Probably not of your project, but of like the science in general. Yep. So obviously, first, we need to figure out what is subrin, what is the structure of subrin, how it is biosynthesized. So that becomes the focus of my project. Um, following this, there's a bunch of different things that we can do. So for example, we could go through marker-assisted breeding. So if we can identify... Um, key genetic components that produced enhanced subarin, we can then target those genes and ensure those are in subsequent lines of these crops being bred. Um, you also have genetic modification, so we could be um, adding in maybe more efficient copies of genes. Um, and then there's also conventional breeding, so that kind of gets a little bit away from the project. But if we're able to create a line that is um, producing optimized subarin or enhanced subarin or just quicker at doing such, we would be able to kind of selectively breed those crops to maintain that genetic signature. So I guess a bit of a weird question then, if we're thinking about like, well, we might change something about subarin in a potato, and this will probably help us uh, get more potatoes or healthier potatoes. Um, what about 
the taste. <laughs> yeah. Does super, what does Subarin taste like? I don't know if you would possibly know that. So this is kind of one of my favorite questions because it was actually asked to me at a conference and took me completely off guard mm. um, just because it came completely out of right hand. I think so much about the um, beauty of the biosynthetic pathways that I don't think so much about helping the organism or what the organism is like that I'm working in. So the short answer to that question is potatoes already have a ver like a varying array of different kinds of subarin being embedded. Well, it's all subarin, but some have more, some have less, and you actually see it already on your shelves. So for example, the russet potato has this very thick paradigm. It's fantastic for baked potatoes, but you might not be making scalloped potatoes out of it. You want something more like a Yukon gold in order to do that with that kind of thin, smooth outer skin. So if you were to put those into your drawer, you would be expecting that russet potato to survive a lot longer. So yes, it kind of comes down to how thick do we want this paraderm? Um, could we just improve the speed of it in order to not have such a thick paraderm in um, potato crops that should have obviously this very thin skin? So it kind of becomes this fun little balancing game. But lucky for me, we're probably at least a decade off, if not maybe a bit more to getting to that point. That's cool that this superin has basically functional implications to the culinary uses of uh, potatoes. So you're tracking these two different domain groups. What else are you looking at within your project looking with potatoes? Yeah, so I just covered for you kind of my objective one of my project. And as I went through reclassification into a PhD from my master's, we added on this kind of secondary objective. So I talked to you already a little bit about um, these two domains of superin. So our second question became, well, what are these domains? What are they formed of? What is their absolute role? What is their function? So our experimental design will be using RNAi to knock down a gene. So we will be, de we will be decreasing um, its functionality basically within the potato. And by, um, by a result of that, we are going to have less ferulic acid produced. So ferulic acid, very important molecule in subarin. It's probably the most abundant um, phenolic that is in both the phenolic domain as well as the aliphatic domain. So if we re decrease the pool of this, we'll be able to see what happens to both of these domains when they're trying to be formed. So maybe we'll get like a wonky subarin molecule that's not as great as ke at keeping pathogens out. Or who knows, maybe we won't affect it at all, in which case we start asking, well, is there redundant um, redundant pathways that are happening or the redundant enzymes that are compensating for the loss of this compound. Well, that, uh, that's awesome. You know, now that you've, uh, you know, you're characterizing everything to do with the subarin and the potato, you're okay. Uh, well, now we might know something about it, but can we influence it? Yeah. What happens if we try and actually modify it by like changing something genetically? And that's where that RNAi technique comes yeah. in. So that's really awesome. And now you have like pretty clear predictions as well. I mean, you ha you seem like you you know pretty well uh, this pathway, like you really got a good handle of it. Um, did you have any experience with potatoes and potato metabolic pathways before you started here? I'm gonna say yes and no. So I had experience with potatoes for sure. I went to Nipissing University, so very small university up north. Um, my thesis class was about maybe 12 people in size, so very small. And I approached my favorite professor. I looked up to her so much. This is Professor Ava Dokis from Nipissing. And I hoped that I could do a fourth year thesis with her. Um, the only information she gave me about my fourth year thesis was it has to be about potatoes and it has to use Rebus fungicide. 
So after a lot of literature review, just trying to figure out, well, what do I study in a potato? What's the importance of potatoes? Um, I kind of stumbled onto this um, molecule, Subarin. I was like, wow, this is really cool. We can do some cool stuff with microscopy. So I got pretty heavy into that. And that's actually what led me to Western um, for Ontario Biology Day, where I presented that research. Do you do a lot of microscopy with what you're doing right now as part of your work? At the moment, I don't do any, but we're pretty excited to hopefully start working in some transmission electron microscopy. So this will give us pretty high resolution photos of the overall structure within the um, potato cells. What will that do for you, being able to see it that way in that yeah. context? So the Subrin lamellae, which is kind of this aliphatic domain that I was talking to you about, um, is very kind of interesting in the way it presents itself. So it has light and dark bands, so it almost looks like... Um, almost looks like the checkerboard without the squares. Like it's just a whole bunch of lines. And because of the uniformity of this domain, if we're to remove ferulic acid from being um, embedded in it, um, likely we're going to affect the uniformity of those stripes. So it becomes um, this nice little um, ultra-structural way to identify, are we actually affecting subrin itself or are we only affecting the monomers that are being um, embedded into subrin? And presumably that structure is pretty key for its function with the with the whole wound healing and whatnot. Yeah, yeah. So if you mess it up, it's probably not going to he- heal so well. Yeah, the ideal story is you have um, a messed up subrin lamellae, so the lines are all distorted. You have a change in chemical composition. And then ideally, one step past what my project is actually doing will be to test um, potato pathogens on it. So do these have increased virulence? Are they more effective against this um, altered um, genotype? Given that you're doing your research uh, on a topic that's so applicable to something very important in society, this agricultural crop that's very dominant, do you have any industry partners you work with? Do you work hand in hand with anybody in that way? I do not, but if anybody ever listens to this who would like to partner on <laughs> potatoes, feel free to contact me. You're like, if it's about potatoes, I'm on it. <laughs> yeah. Do you like potatoes? <laughs> oh, goodness. Yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I have to ask you, do you have a favorite potato recipe? Ooh, potato skins. Like potato good skin. old greasy bar food, green onions, bacon, cheese. You scoop out the inside of the potato and then you kind of bake the skin so it's crispy. Has so, to be an arrested potato, though. Is that because it's the highest subarin level? That's like <laughs> absolutely, as she nods sarcastically. <laughs> yes. Wow, wow. Yeah, no, I like potato skins too. I like. I mean, there's so many friggin' things you can make out of potato. Is it? Is the is the reason there's so many things you can eat? You can so many things. You so many ways you can cook a potato because of like the wound healing or like something biologically about potatoes that we can like cook it in so many different ways. I think it's just been so embedded within our culture. Um, Something you guys might not know about potatoes is they actually used to be toxic. Um, Did not know that. (laughs) Don't quote me on this, but I believe I heard that um, kind of the Andean culture used to observe ancestors of the llama eating potatoes, and they would eat it alongside clay. So clay, porous, would kind of absorb these toxins. So that was kind of the um, birthplace of this um, potato soup being made in these um, clay pots. And then from there, it kind of um, found itself all over the world. So Ireland, as you guys know, is probably very popular for potatoes, PEI in Canada. And yeah, it's just such a diverse um, vegetable. And 
so many different cultures use it in so many different ways and then lots of recipe sharing so are there like um i I feel like there's always such a variety of like different uh species of different organisms that like there's always this a few weird ones like is there a real weird looking potato that you're like yeah i mean you haven't seen a crazy potato so until you've seen that potato Well, the ones that have grown from our Western field research station are pretty funky looking. It's essentially one large potato with multiple small potatoes growing off of it. Whoa. Um, I could send everyone photos if they want to see some weird potatoes. (laughs) Mm -hmm. We might Um, have to see those. We have Frankenstein potatoes here at Western. Oh, and they're giant. Like, Mm. largest potatoes I've ever seen. But you do get the weird Franken potato, as you called it earlier, popping out every now and again. (laughs) Damn. I, I guess, uh, you know, I, I study fruit flies and I feel like everybody, all my friends and family that like they see any fly anywhere, they don't, it doesn't even have to be a fruit fly. Uh, they'll send me a picture of me like, it's one of your buddies. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm guessing that you have a lot of friends and family that are like anything about potatoes. They just send it your way. Oh. How frequently are you abundant, uh, bombarded <laughs> with potato stuff? Oh, quite frequently. And not just potatoes, but anything plant related at all, because the general fields plant biochemistry for me. So even people I haven't talked to since high school will reach out to me on Instagram and be like, hi, I have this plant. It's dying. Can you help? (laughs) So as, as a plant biochemist focusing right now on potatoes, where do you see yourself going with your research in the future? Like, where are you in your program right now, actually? Oh, so I am probably a year and two months out if I'm kind of going to go down to the um, like the specific time of when I plan to graduate. So that would be September 2024. In terms of where I plan on going, that's a loaded question because truthfully, I have no idea, um, which might make some other grad students who are listening to this feel a lot happier. But <laughs> yeah, the short of it is I'm going to start reaching out and I'm hopefully looking for postdoc positions and just trying to start my networking. I mean, I think uh, with your deep knowledge and interest in the topic, you seem pretty well suited for academia. But I mean, they need that in industry. And like Scott mentioned as well, like <laughs> certain a lot, certainly a lot of uh, agricultural potential. So, I mean, it seems like you uh, world's your oyster, so to speak. <laughs> oh, thank you very much. Yes. Uh, you know, we're here in London, Ontario, and a lot of people come from all over the world to study here. I, I, I'm not from here either. Where in the world do you think you want to go? Oh, so again, loaded question, because truthfully, anywhere that is going to pay me. Um, I think building a early career in a kind of either well-off lab or um, industry, just kind of getting those initial steps through the door is kind of the most important thing. So if that takes me across the world, then I am up for the experience for sure. Um, But my end goal is always hoping to come back to Canada. All my family's here. I have so many amazing friends and colleagues that I hope to stay around. So Canada is still the end goal. Nice. So you've talked about a wide range of different skills that you've employed. You've talked about isotopes. You're talking about how what you do links to potential genetic manipulations, breeding, a lot of things that you're very familiar with. You looked at the fungus before. Are there any particular different analytical techniques or just methodologies that you found that you enjoyed the most that were most important to you or meant the most to you in your project? So at this current point in time, my um, obsession has basically gone to gas chromatography, mass spectrometry. And um, it's probably the biggest pain in my butt during the whole experiment because it's constantly having issues. But yeah, I have really found a 
pretty solid interest in even the physics behind the machine, the uses of the machine. And as much as I would complain about the troubleshooting, even that to me is very, very interesting. So you talked a bit about the isotopes and what that is for us, which was really cool. What is gas chromatography? Yeah, so gas chromatography partnered with uh, mass spectrometry is just a way that we are able to separate volatile compounds. So without the gas chromatography, you'd basically be overloading the mass spectrometer with this huge flux of all of these things all alluding together. So it'd be such a jumbled mess, nobody would be able to identify it. Um, Gas chromatography creates essentially this very long glass capillary column. And within it, you have this matrix, which interacts differently with all of the compounds. So the higher mass compounds will take longer to elute than the smaller ones, which are able to be flushed through the system a lot quicker. And this is all done using gas phase, thus the name gas chromatography. So GC, which is what it is for short, allows me to separate all of these much smaller volatile chemicals before they are shunted into the mass spectrometer. So as I mentioned before, mass spec creates essentially these fingerprints that I'm able to identify all these different compounds with. So it's very important to have them going into the system separately. That way I can observe them and analyze them separately. Wow. On the spot. There we go. You're ready. Defend now. (laughs) You got this. Uh, Yeah, I've got to defend soon. And I don't know if I can answer that uh, articulately uh, with anything in my project. Uh, What advice would you give to, uh, as a senior uh, PhD, you know, near, nearly, nearly doctor, what advice would you give to someone else who wanted to, uh, do what you do? Oh man. Um, honestly, surround yourself with positive people. If you are around positive people, you will also be a positive person, but also don't feel bad if you need to complain sometimes, because sometimes it is such a burden to be a graduate student. It's hard to put on a happy face 24 seven. And if you have a confidant that is around you and you're able to just talk with them openly, truthfully, and be your authentic self with them, I think that's what will truly kind of get you through your program. That's awesome. That is that is a uh, solid advice. I think everyone can can learn from that. Yeah, I mean, certainly. Yeah, I, I, I uh, uh, support that message as well. I agree. What do you think, Scott? Well, yes, I definitely agree with that. I think <laughs> both of us being PhD students as well, uh, and in our case, happen to be science. I, I think that is an incredibly important lesson for people to yeah. take away and be able to learn from. Because we all have a lot of stresses all the time, and you have to be able to see the happiness in it. But you can't do that if you don't talk to your friends exactly. about it throughout time. Yeah. yeah, it's not just about the data. It's about the people. And with that, we're glad to have this person, <laughs> Jessica Sinka, here in the room with us. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. It was a blast. Beautiful. This has been GradCast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students here at Western University. I've been your host, Ariel Frame. My co-host was Scott Walters. We've been speaking with Jessica Sinka, and this episode was produced by Emily Hutchinson. If you'd like to be involved in the show, get in contact with us. Email us at gradcast at sox.ca. You can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, at Gradcast Radio. You can listen to us on Radio Western, 94.9 FM. You can also find our episodes wherever you find podcasts. Thanks for listening, and have a good rest of your day. Bless you. (laughs) You're going to have to cut that out. (laughs)